0: Hello, I'm your host, Jim McLean. Welcome to the latest edition of the Band of podcast. <laughs> so, for this podcast, I'm joined by director David Batty as we talk about his documentary, My Generation. Film's all about London during the swinging 60s and recently screened at the Dublin Film Festival. But I caught up with David last year in London to talk about the film. But before you hear that interview, let's play a clip
1: of my generation. I wasn't always Michael Kane. I was born Maurice Joseph Micklewhite. My mother was a lady, cleaner, and my father was a Billingsgate fish market porter. I was expected to follow in his footsteps, but I hated the smell of fish. So I'm
0: joined now by David Batty, the director of My Generation. David, hello, how are you? Tell us a little bit about the documentary.
1: Fine. Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Um, My Generation is the story of uh, rev- the social revolution in the 60s that happened in London as told by Michael Caine. And it's really about him and his friends, most of them, if not all of them, from a working-class background, who for the first time really in, in British history were able to take on the establishment in all the sort of creative arts and create their own um, popular working-class art art. Um, You know, we take it all for granted nowadays that that, that class, thank goodness, doesn't mean anything, but you go back 50 years in time and you were defined by where you were born or what school you went to. Um, And it's thanks to Michael and his friends, really, in London at least, that um, that's no longer the case.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about the genesis of the project and how you came to be involved with it?
1: Absolutely. So the genesis of the the project, um, like all things, was was sort of by accident in one sense. It started with a conversation between uh, producer Simon Fuller and Michael. Michael had always uh, apparently wanted to make a film about um, how he broke through, and various other friends of his broke through in the 60s simon fuller is a massive sixties music fan and when the two of them got together and thought if we can marry the wonder the wonderful music of the sixties with michael's story of of breaking through then we have a film so that was the sort of initial uh, genesis of the project i then came on board because i heard about it and sort of chased it because personally i, I was born in the sixties i'm a sixties kid uh, and also, my uh, both my parents um, had a similar story to Michael's. I mean, obviously, slightly less famous. Um, uh, my mother was from uh, Manchester, from um, um, factory workers in Man- a family of factory workers in Manchester. And my father was from a family of miners in the northeast, and they both. Um, Broke through in the 60s in their own small ways and did things that their families never dreamed of. My dad became a journalist and a filmmaker himself. My mum became a ballet dancer. Nobody in their family had ever done that. And uh, I, so I grew up with that story in the background, uh, and and of course all the music. And my mother would shop in Bieber, and you know my father was on the fringes of some of these clubs that they went to and things like that. So I had had a little knowledge, and then when I heard that, that uh, Simon and Michael wanted to make this film uh, I wanted to make it too
0: <laughs> I suppose that you've touched on it there the music is such a big part of that mm. of that decade that era and I suppose then when you have someone like Simon Fuller involved as well in terms of getting access to that music for the actual feature itself I suppose that does make a a big di- it makes a big difference and it and it suppose can open a lot of doors in that way I mean no, what way was it Simon Michael yourself what way did you come to the conclusion on the music that would be in this this essentially like the playlist for for this documentary
1: well we always decided that I mean obviously you can't have a film about the 60s without the music and the 60s is about some of the biggest bands the world has ever known so equally we 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 um you know thought big if you like um if we really want to do this story we've got to be able to get the stones the Beatles, the who the kinks the animals all of those bands in and you know again thanks to simon we were able to do that hasn't been easy uh, and it's not cheap but I think it's worth it and the reason being what I really we all wanted to do with this and, and the analogy I use is kids today tend to little people today and kids today tend to listen to music on iTunes and Spotify so they listen to individual tracks I grew up in the era of the album and somebody would write an album a band or an individual and there was a story to tell in that album and you listened to all the tracks in the album and you came away with something, and you either liked it or disliked it. And what I wanted to do with the 60s was really put the music back into the 60s as an album. So the tracks you hear in the film are familiar ones. You'd have heard most of them before, but you haven't heard them in the context in which they were written, in which they were, you know, what the, the whole point of them was. And so what we were trying to create was more an al- the album of the 60s, if you like. You've touched
0: on this, but I just want to come back. You, you mentioned that this was a project Simon and Michael had, had were working on, and then you came on board as a director. How did you steer it? What did you bring to that project that um, maybe wasn't there before? Or maybe what way did you help shape the direction in which the documentary was going?
1: Well, several ways, really. I mean, the, 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 the film was really just, just an idea, you know. That, uh, what we had to create was structure and style to the film. Um, The structure uh, which I came up with was that when I first met Michael, um, he told me a lot of his stories about the 60s. We just sat down and had a long, long discussion. And I realized he's got a huge number of stories, but Quite a lot of them are not just stories, they're stories with a point. They tell you something about class or about social status or about inequality or something. They they, they tell you how things moved or changed in the 60s. So I realized that actually what we could do is we could take those stories um, and if we put them in a certain order, they do then tell a story and they're not just random stories. So that was the sort of first inkling of a structure. And then in terms of style, we all decided quite early on that what we were trying to do was really take people on a journey back to the 60s. And we wanted them to stay there for the duration of the film. It's quite a short film um, and very fast-paced. But what we didn't want to do was break that moment. And my feeling about Talking Heads is that it breaks the moment. Um, and you're suddenly brought out of the 60s to listen to somebody and then you're taken back in. And so we made a decision very early on that we were going to have no talking heads in the film other than Michael himself as our master storyteller. Um, And, you know, it was a sort of slightly scary and bold decision because it all depended on us finding enough archive of the characters who are speaking in the film that you then, you know, you can see... David Bailey, Roger Daltrey, Marianne Faithfull. But thankfully we did. And in fact, we found loads of stuff. Um, and so that, the, that that was really what I brought to it, was 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 a structure and then a style.
0: Any documentary or filmmaker will say that archive footage can sometimes be, it can, it can be problematic in terms of like, I mean, was there any issues in that with, with any of the archive footage that you find and, and securing it and be able to use it for the feature? Um, was that ever an issue when when you were making the film?
1: Oh, there's always, always issues because you, you know, you have to discover who owns it. And, and quite often, the further back in time you go, the less obvious it is who owns it. And nowadays, because we live in, live in such a legalised world, everybody wants bits of paper. So, uh, yeah, you know, there were occasionally bits and pieces that we couldn't use for one reason or another. But there was nothing totally significant, actually, thank goodness. I mean, we had some extraordinary finds on that. There was a cult filmmaker from the 60s called Peter Whitehead, amazing filmmaker, uh, who did a film called Tonight Let's Make Love in London and several other films um, about that scene. And he interviewed most of our cast, in fact, at the time. Um, that film is freely available, and you, you, you can you can you can you know, license it. Uh, but what we did is we tracked Peter down, and then discovered that he had all his rushes, and uh, gained access to all his rushes. Did a deal with him, um, and most of those rushes were in colour as well. So once we sort of uh, transferred it digitally, transferred it, that was like a gold mine. Um, and there were sort of two or three other people. That, like that there was another um, Australian filmmaker who spent a lot of time in London very similar to Peter called Peter Clifton Um, I think it was finding things like that that was just amazing I've done quite a few archive films in the past and what I've discovered is as long as you give yourself enough time it's there
0: the other thing I suppose banging back pardon me the only other thing I, I really wanted to say was, like, speaking generally, how did you find the experience working with with Michael Caine? One of quite possibly not just the era that you're talking about, but quite, like one of the most iconic British actors of all time. Like, I mean, how did you find that process working with him?
1: Well, you know, they they, they always say, you know, it's a bit of a cliche. They say you know, don't ever meet your heroes. <laughs> Uh, I got to direct one of mine well of course you know the first time I met him it's a sort of you know intimidating scary experience however I'd say you know and I genuinely mean this he is one of the most genuine um, and generous people I've ever met um, in terms of his time um, and his commitment to the project I mean what it obviously is is it's, it's it's a journey back for him it's a journey for us but it's a journey back for him and we discovered a lot of things that he'd forgotten he'd done so there was you know there were lots of lovely moments where we were giving him something and you know he wasn't just giving us something um, but no it was it was it was unbelievably easy actually that sort of relationship. I mean the difficulty is always is he 's an incredibly busy guy um, even though he will be eighty five next year he until last year, I think he was doing three or four films a year, which is astonishing. I mean I hope I can do that when i 'm eighty four uh, um, so it was sort of trying to find time in his busy schedule. that was always the tricky thing, but you know if he had the time he 'd give it. Um, so no, I mean there was there was never ne- never a problem with with um, working with them at all.
0: Was there anything, and this is my last question, was there anything from those discussions that you learnt about that time that period that you were never aware of, or or anything that that, that shocked you when you think back that? When you look through the material, when you look through the archive footage, <coughs> on from, as I say, speaking to Michael, anything that surprised you, took you by surprise, shocked you?
1: There were lots of little sort of stories that um, I didn't know uh, was the case, and you know there were sort of weird little things that happened at the time. One, one of the ones that people often pick out in the film um, is the fact that the um, Beatles wrote The Stones' first number one hit, um, and it was such a casual conversation in which um, they gave, you know, Paul McCartney gives Mick Jagger this mm-hmm. song. And it just sort of, uh, I'd heard, Michael had told me the story because he'd obviously heard it from Paul. Um, and I just thought that can't be true, you know, it just sort of sounds too, too, you know, it's just too glib. But then, you know, when we interviewed Paul, I got Michael to ask, or Michael asked him, and he told the full story. And, you know, well, he told it, so I presume it's true. And it's just sort of like one of those things that you thought, that just would not happen now, because there'd be too many other people involved. Um, you know, there'd they, be too much money involved, they'd never allow that. So I think that, that was one small thing. I think a big thing for me was I'd heard from my parents, you know, about the class thing in the 60s, and I just thought they were whinging, Um, because, you know, when I grew up, we didn't give a damn what people, background people came from, Um, but the more we went into it, the more you realise how, um, you know, how how oppressive that was, and what, 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 and I think I found that pretty shocking, actually. Um, so, yeah, I think the sort of extent of the class oppression was, 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 was always a shock to me. And then, you know, finding out little details about people's lives that really were true.
0: Okay. Well, on that note, uh, thank you very much, David, and good luck with the rest of the Thank you. Thank you. So that pretty much brings this podcast to a close. Thank you as always for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. If you can't wait until then, don't forget you can check out our website for our complete back catalogue. But for now, until our next episode, goodbye.